Our text is Psalm 98. It's on page 5 of the bulletin. Not only is this an exuberant psalm, it is actually, for reasons that I hope will become clear, the psalm assigned in our readings for Christmas Day itself is a Christmas psalm. The text consists of three very closely, uh, tightly related stanzas. And so we'll look at it under three corresponding headings. In the first stanza, which is verses 1 through 3, we have Israel's praise. And then in the second stanza, verses 4 through 6, we have the praise of the whole earth. And in the third stanza, verses 7 through 9, we have the praise of the creation or the praise of the cosmos. So think of this as an ever-expanding choir. The Lord's appearance evokes the praise of Israel. Israel's praise flows out into the praise of the nations. And the praise of Israel and the praise of the nations calls forth and is joined by the whole universe in this unending symphony of glorious acclamation to the coming king. All of that here, a thousand years before Christ, in Psalm 98. You can think of it as like an inverted pyramid, where as you move from the bottom to the top, you're moving from the local, or the particular, to the global, or the universal, from Israel, to all the earth, to the nations, and unto the the cosmos, the universe. So that's the structure of the psalm. So first, the praise of Israel. Psalm 98, verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. This new song is mentioned by the prophet Isaiah. He mentions it in association with his vision of this coming suffering servant of the Lord. And then this thread of a new song echoes down through the Psalms of Israel, and finally it is sung before the throne of God by the saints and martyrs in the book of Revelation. This song is beyond all human reckoning and composition. It's beyond all the expectations of the poets and the songwriters of all generations. In the best of our music, it can only be dimly anticipated. The song is new, which means, among other things, it's fresh and it's bracing because it's a song in response to the final, decisive, strange action of God in Jesus Christ. And we are commanded in the psalm to be its passionate Singers, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. God has acted, right? He has done something wondrous, and that is the rationale for the new song. And so, of course, the question is, just what is it, what is the marvelous thing that God has done that provokes it, provokes the singing? And you can see it in the second half of verse 1. His right hand, his holy arm, have worked salvation for him. 
Now, this metaphor of the, the arm or the hand of the Lord is first used in Exodus to speak of God's mighty deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery and bondage. So it's, it's intimately associated with God's working salvation for his people. And that's how it's used here in verse 2. The Lord has made his salvation known. He has revealed his righteousness. So the arm of the Lord then refers to a kind of invasion of redemptive goodness in the world. Redemptive holiness, an eruption into history. An eruption by God who's styled as a kind of divine warrior. It's an invasion which procures salvation. It's an apocalyptic act. And notice, then, this salvation brought about by the arm of the Lord is a sovereign act, holy from above, and thus it is all of grace. Pure gift. This delivering arm, then, has wrought salvation, free salvation, finally and shockingly, In Jesus Christ. Right in Isaiah, in that famous 53rd chapter, the prophet, he is describing the passion, the anguish of the Christ. And he opens that famous chapter by saying this, Lord, who has believed our report? It's an astonishing and strange thing. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The holy arm of the mighty warrior God is the child in the womb of the virgin girl. This is the great paradox and mystery of the Christian story. That weakness is the holy arm of God. And thus in her Magnificat, her song, the song that Mary sings upon her visit to Elizabeth, she echoes this very text in a remarkable manner. I have no doubt that Mary herself had this psalm in mind as she sung. Notice this. Here, it's sing to the Lord a new song. Mary says, my soul does magnify the Lord. Here, it's He has done marvelous things. Mary says, he that is mighty has done great things. Here it's his hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. Mary says, he has shown strength with his arm. Mary's child is the arm of the Lord. The mighty work of salvation that he has wrought and he has done it in open history. And the church has always made this plain, as her creed puts it, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. This is the holy invasion of the arm of God in history. Not only does God act here, but in acting, he unveils himself. He shows us his heart, his being. You can see this in verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. 
He makes known. He reveals himself. And thus we have in Jesus Christ the one who is both the great action and the full revelation of God. This is an important question to ask ourselves. Are we looking in the right place for the mighty power of God? For the holy arm of God? You are to look for it in the face of Mary's baby. In the face of Jesus Christ. This is power in weakness. Or in Paul's words, this is a weakness which is stronger than the might of men. And so in verse 3, you get this kind of historical background for this marvelous deed. He has remembered his steadfast love, his faithfulness to Israel. When God acts, when he bears his mighty arm in Mary's baby, he's remembering his mercy and his faithfulness and his covenant to Israel. So it turns out, that the strange new song was anticipated and spoken of and yearned for in Israel's own history. In the womb of Mary, Jesus comes out of the womb of Israel. The hopes and the fears of all of Israel's years are met in him tonight. All of this, then, is why it is first Israel, which is commanded, notice, to sing this new song. And so the church, the church as the Israel of God, sings to the Lord an unending new song. A song that partakes of the unending newness, the indestructible glory and freshness of this act, when God becomes man. So that's the praise of Israel. And the second thing I want us to see in this psalm is the praise of all the earth. You'll notice that the nations have already been mentioned in the psalm. But to this point, they've merely been observers. But the end of verse 3 makes it clear that not only will they see, but that the ends of the earth will have the good news or the gospel proclaimed to them. So that the psalmist foresees a day that when God bears his holy arm in Israel, The news will resound to every tribe and every tongue and every language. It will shatter the borders of Israel as, in fact, against all human calculation in the history of the church, it has done. And thus we have, in the middle portion of the psalm, in verses 4 through 6, a summons to the Gentile nations. So we're moving up the inverted pyramid from Israel to the other lands. This is made clear in verse 4. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. What the nations have seen wrought in Israel, they're now to participate in. And this part of the psalm, it's a very noisy section. The dreariness of winter is shattered by the Christmas event, which is to be and in fact has been and is being celebrated in every tongue, even this very night. This incarnation of the Son of God has filled the world with throngs of things, bright and beautiful. The world of song 
would be infinitely poorer without the church's international celebration of Christmas, without her vast, luminous, advent, nativity, hymnody, which sustains her life around the world, of which we heard a good bit of it this evening. Musical fads will come and go. The music, that the new song that is provoked by the incarnation endures. This single act of the living God has bequeathed some of the most moving, enduring art and music the world has ever known. And this is not surprising. This incarnation stuff might seem pretty simple. Or it might seem passe to you. But if you scratch the surface of it, There's an infinite, unending ocean of wonders here. Beauty itself has been made flesh. That's another way to think of the incarnation of the Christmas story. The God who is intrinsically beautiful, who is beauty himself, has now taken on human flesh. And the echoes of that beauty reverberate out into the nations. Notice again in the text, these are commands. Shout for joy. Twice in the text. Burst into jubilant song. Make music. Volume and projection. Actual joyful noise are not optional. They are required of us here. So that in the summoning of us, of you and I, to this new song, God lays claim. He lays claim to the very breath in your lungs. Or, let me put this differently. Singing praise to God in response to what he's done is a deeply rational act. In fact, it is at the heart of your vocation as a human being. It is at the heart of what it means to be a creature. Standing, lifting one's head, filling one's lungs, singing to God. That is the singular act which aligns and orients human beings rightly. And to refuse to sing, to remain mute or silent, is to have one's vision bent and one's soul darkened. It is to dehumanize oneself. Creatures are created to sing. And notice, the psalm goes on and says that a full array, a full complement of instruments are to be employed. The lyre, the harp, trumpets, horns. Trumpets were used in Israel for the calling of sacred assemblies. But the psalm envisions a time when all the nations will have their own sacred choirs play their own instruments in their own tongues. And again, the reasons for the nation's praise, it's given in succinct form. You can see it at the end of verse 6. It's because the king, before we are to shout for joy, is the Lord. Now this is really an astonishing thing for two reasons. First, it's a claim that Israel's king is the king of all the nations. So that he who is revealed in Jesus Christ 
right, is no local or provincial deity. He is Lord of all. He makes totalitarian claims. It's a totalitarianism of beauty and love. Second, this tells us that the manifestation, the unveiling of God's holy arm in the weakness of Jesus Christ, in his lowliness, in his frailty, that is a manifestation of God's kingly power. Right? Never has there been regal splendor like this splendor. Never has there been power like this vulnerable infant weakness. And so we can see at this point that we have what scholars call a royal enthronement psalm. A psalm used by Israel to enthrone her kings. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth, all the earth, receive her king. So finally, third, corresponding to the third stanza, is the praise of the cosmos. Again, this is the final movement here, up the inverted pyramid. From Israel, to the nations, to the whole creation. And so here, the orchestra of nature joins the movement. Verse 7. Let the sea resound and everything in it. Not only the nearly infinite waters, but all the strange and scary creatures, all the organic life forms, all the inorganic structures, they are not only to join the new song, they are to resound or to roar. And so the poet, right, the the poetic personification continues here in verse 8. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. St. Francis was no fool when he called on the burning sun and the silver moon and all creatures of our God and King to praise him. It is the vocation of all creatures, not just human creatures. It is the vocation. It is the summons. It is the dignity and glory of all creatures to praise their creator. Rushing wind. Clouds, the rising morn, the lights of evening, the flowing water, the fire masterful and bright. Plagiarizing Francis Moore. Right, since Israel's God and King, right, the God and King of the nations, is the creator and the sustainer of all things, his appearance then, when that God appears, it calls forth praise from all that he has made. In Jesus Christ, the creation recognizes its creator. This is the deep logic of singing at Christmas. The creator, Lord of all the nations, has become man, and the church recognizes in that baby our creator, which means it recognizes that we are creatures and that we are summoned to render worship. There's nothing slavish or infantile about worship. It is the highest act of human liberation. Paul tells us that the creation groans and travails in childbirth. It's awaiting its full redemption. Well, now that full redemption 
has appeared and the process is underway. And in between the contractions, in between the sighing, the creation is called to sing. Israel and the nation sing, and the very stones, Jesus said, will cry out. We are calling. We are doing this, by the way. We are engaging in this summons ourselves. We just did it a few minutes ago, and we do it here at Westminster every Sunday. We are calling upon the sea and the rivers and the hills, Francis-like, to obey these commands every week in the doxology, which we sang earlier, when we sing, Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, all creatures here below. It is the inner longing, it is the destiny of the whole creation to sing to the King. And we're given yet another reason for this universal choir. It's in verse 9. All of this, all this creaturely frolicking is done before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. What? I thought this was a Christmas psalm. See, the church has always understood this deep, profound connection that to celebrate the first coming of Christ is to yearn for the second coming. To celebrate the beginning of the world's redemption is to yearn for its creation. And in this text, we see the second coming of the holy arm of the Lord revealed. And thus, in Psalm 98, no less, we have both comings of Jesus. The first coming and the second coming. Both appearings telescoped together. Christmas is remembering the first coming and yearning for the second. This is a great omission, beloved. Christmas is not simply about remembering the baby or even celebrating the baby. It's about looking back to the baby and knowing that that one will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. And to celebrate the first part of Christmas without the second is to mangle the feast. The first advent sets the second one in motion. Our own redemption widens out, the psalm says, into the redemption of the whole creation. God has raised the son of Mary from the dead. And he has ordained a day in which he will. As verse 9 says, judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. It's a remarkable thing about Holy Scripture that a text like this can open with showing us that the mighty arm of the Lord is the weak baby of Mary and end with that same baby raised in glory coming to judge the living and the dead. In a text that is nine verses long, written a thousand years before Christ. I want you to notice something important about this coming to judge the world in righteousness and and the peoples with equity. It is good news in the psalm. It's sheer joy here. There's no terror in it at all. Because if you have a broken world, you have a world that has gone wrong badly. You have languishing people. You have a groaning creation. Then this coming in judgment is a welcome liberation. It means justice. It means vindication. It means Sabbath rest. It means shalom. It means the destruction of death 
the banishment of disease, the restoration of the whole creation. It means all things made new. This is why the church yearns for this appearance. And thus, with the psalmist, we confess that this coming to judge will be the cause of rejoicing in the church and jubilation in the whole creation. Notice what the psalmist has done. He has called on the rivers to clap their hands, the hills to dance, the whole created order to sing, the sea to to roar, because the Lord is coming to judge the nations. So Israel sings, and the song spreads out to the nations, out through the whole universe. And it summons us. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For in Mary's child he has done, he is doing, and he shall do marvelous things. Amen.